making our way verse by verse through the book of James, and we're up to chapter 4, verse 13. Hear the word of God. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Amen. Father God, we come and bow our hearts before your word. It is our desire to have our lives conform to that word. I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach your word and anoint me to that end. And you would anoint each hearer, Father, that we might be hearers and doers and lovers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When I was a teenager, I had a friend that I was corresponding with, and he sprinkled his letters with the initials DV. He said, I'll be at such and such a place, uh, DV. And I asked him, what in the world does DV mean? He says, well, that's short for uh, Deo Volante. And I said, well, what does that mean? He says, well, that's Latin for Lord Willing. And I started picking up that uh, habit. He said, that's the way that everybody used to write in the old days. And uh, you look at some of the letters that were written by, you know, George Whitfield and, I mean, all of the old greats, and you see DV sprinkled all the way through it. And I really think that that is an expression that we ought to resurrect, whether you use DV or just the English Lord willing. I think we ought to resurrect it in our common speech because it is a constant reminder that we are not sovereign, God is. And uh, last week, we looked at verses 11 and 12, and we saw we're not the sovereign who makes law. Here we see we are not the sovereign who uh, can control the future, who can control time. And uh, I think having a constant reminder that God can change our plans any time that he chooses is a humbling, and yet it's a very, very good thing. Now, before we look at God's sovereignty, I do, unfortunately, need to lay aside a few misconceptions Uh, There are always people who are pitting Paul against uh, James in various ways. And in this passage, you'll see in some biographies, people saying, well, you know, Paul, he's the guy who's constantly planning for the future. He's a driven guy. He's a businessman. Whereas James, you know, he's against businessmen. He's against capitalism. He's against, uh, uh, you know, planning for the future. And so I want to set aside this kind of a misconception because I think it is totally uh, false. We want to look, first of all, at what the text does not mean before we look at what it does mean. And some people have thought James flat out tells us we ought not to be planning for the future, that to plan for the future means that we are not trusting God. And if you take it out of context, just the first couple verses, you might come to that conclusion, uh, but we're not going to take it out of context, obviously. But look at verse um, 13. It talks about time management here. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. And so there's uh, short-term goals, there's long-term goals, there's, uh, there's uh, the, the planning that goes into it, there's the process in between of uh, making this pro- profit. And then these people will say in the next verse... James is doing away with all of that. He is saying it's ridiculous to be planning. 
He says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Why in the world would you be planning a year from now if you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow? Forget about that. Just trust the Lord. And then it goes on for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so I've run across people who vigorously oppose the idea of planning because they say it is just flat out a failure to trust in God's sovereignty. And it's not just hyper-Calvinists, by the way, who do this. I've run across a number of Arminians who have said the same thing, that we need to be, I mean, it's almost a pacifistic approach to the future. You're letting things happen to you rather than really trying to, in some way, imitate God and imitate uh, Christ by taking dominion. You see, God took dominion over the garden. He presented it to Adam. He modeled to him what he was supposed to do. And then he told Adam, you know, he needs to take dominion in a, in a similar way. And so one of the things I want to encourage you is to never put trust in opposition to divine sovereignty. Never put trust in opposition to human responsibility. Either one is wrong. They go together. And verses 14 through 17 are definitely not in opposition to verse 13. They're intended to show verse 13 is not enough. And it's not being done in the right way, in the right context. And so don't ever excuse your laziness and uh, your poor planning with the words that you're trusting God. Now, that's an insult to God. Um, uh, my response to people like that is, how in the world could you be trusting God when you're disobeying God's command to be planning for the future? You know, how is trust uh, expressed by disobedience? I mean, that's just an impossibility. And over and over again in the scriptures, God commands us to be, to be being stewards of the time, redeeming the time. Uh, planning for the future, whether it's uh, our finances or our children's education or whatever it may be, the Scripture calls us to, to plan. In fact, it's only because God is sovereign over the future, the past, and the present that we can make plans and, uh, according to the biblical principles and expect uh, and anticipate God will bless those plans. If chance ruled, there'd be no point in planning, would it? Because everything would be topsy-turvy. There would be no law and, and order. And I'm not going to go into all of the biblical mandates to engage in, in planning because entire books have been written on that. Uh, biblical time management, biblical uh, financial management, strategic planning, all of those types of things. Uh, but in the Bible, we will find things like in the Psalms where it says our planning needs to be so long-term that what we are doing right now will have an impact in a positive way upon our grandchildren and upon our great-grandchildren. And James hints at that right here. Actually, it's not hinted. It's just so obvious on the surface. Look at verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. <clears throat> We shall do this or that is basically a summary of verse 13, of all of the planning and all of the management that went into verse 13. And he says, this is a moral imperative. You ought to be able to say, we shall do this or that. Uh, you know, next month, Lord willing, I'm going to do this. Two months from now, Lord willing, I'm going to be able to do that. A year from now, Lord willing, we'll do such and such. And if you cannot say that, then you're disobeying the imperative, the command of James. And so this objection really has taken James completely uh, out of context. <clears throat> um, most Christians that uh, I have talked to cannot obey uh, James' command. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall do this or that, you know, in a month or two months or a year. And the reason they can't is they don't have any plans. They don't have goals for their family. They don't have 
uh, you know, goals for their intellectual life, for their financial life, for their spiritual walk, their ministry. They don't have goals at all. And so how in the world are they going to be able to say what they're going to do in a month, a year or two years uh, if, they do not, if they do not do that? This is a moral imperative. And Luke 14, 28 through 32 is Christ's harsh words to people who do not plan. Lazy Christians who refuse to take dominion and redeem the time as Christ commanded us to. Now, hopefully I've repeated that enough times you can see divine sovereignty is not pitted against planning. In fact, divine sovereignty enables our planning. It mandates our planning. We must be involved in planning. So the aspects of planning that James approves of in verse 15 include, first of all, time management. You can see that in verses, um, verse 13, starting time and an ending time for every project, okay? And when you're finished with that, you know you're going to go on to another project, time management. The second thing that's approved of here is strategic planning targeting this particular city with this particular product at this particular time. That's strategic planning. This is the one that's going to be successful at this particular time. And it is not condemned in these verses. In fact, it's essential to have such plans because if you don't have strategic planning, your company is going to go belly up and you're going to have been a poor steward of the resources that God has entrusted into your care. Uh, you're going to have squandered it. When I was in school, uh, there was a, a person who was getting all over the case of a shopkeeper who had pulled up roots from the, an inner city area that was completely deteriorating, lots of abandoned buildings, and he'd moved elsewhere. And this guy was railing against him for having left that inner city uh, area uh, and he just see, saw it as, as greed. You need to stay there, otherwise this, this area is going to deteriorate. I think that's absolute nonsense because the shopkeeper is supposed to be a servant to the customer, right? And if he doesn't go where the customers are, he's not being a good shopkeeper. In fact, he won't be a shopkeeper very long. And so I thought that was a, a, a ridiculous uh, idea that uh, he had there. That, that store would go belly up and he would have squandered his resources. And so James is in no way reproving a company's plans to target XYZ country with a certain product. His reproof is that they have failed to fit their planning into an overall kingdom framework, following biblical guidelines. In fact, he's going to be giving an example of business guidelines in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, that are being violated by these, these rich people here that he gives a tongue lashing to. But he's not against capitalism. He's against unprincipled capitalism. Uh, he's not against strategic planning. He's against the kind of planning that ignores God's sovereignty or bucks against uh, God's sovereignty. In Ecclesiastes, God says there is a season, there is a time and a season for everything under heaven. And those are wonderful words to think about. Now, in verse 13, James also alludes to financial strategy and to the setting of goals. And verse 15, again, is assuming that those goals are legitimate to be following through on. Even the mundane goal that's given here to make a profit is a spiritual goal biblically. Isn't that what Second John verse 2 says? My beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. You can't spiritualize that away. He wants soul prosperity, he wants body prosperity, that he may be in health, and he wants him to prosper in all things. Here's another one, Proverbs 14, verse 23. In all labor there is profit, 
What kind of prophet is he talking about? You can't spiritualize this one away because he defines the prophet with the next clause. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. He is saying that even a common laborer is a capitalist when you really think about it because he's a businessman selling his labor uh, who is uh, marketing his labor to the person who will be able to uh, best uh, use it. And so again, he is not against profit in, in any sense uh, of the term. Um, <clears throat> it's not enough to ask God to uh, bless us at the end of the year. You've got socialists who, who say that we, you know, we're sinning against God and James is against profit. And in chapter 5, as well as in chapter 4, that he's rebuking these people for capitalism. I mean, you can read the socialist commentaries uh, on this. And uh, we're going to deal with chapter 5, but you will not find, Lord willing, we'll deal with it next week, okay? But you will not find one word of condemnation for profit in, in this uh, paragraph right here. What had happened is these folks had turned their planning into self-centered, self-serving, this-worldly-only planning that left God and His kingdom and God's purposes completely out of the equation. And so, like I say, we shouldn't... Um, you know, work, ignoring God for the day, and at the end of the day say, oh, by the way, Lord, please prosper my efforts. Uh, or at the end of the month, ask God to prosper the work of our company because God's not here to serve our company. Our company is here to serve God. Our labor is here to serve God. God has entrusted us with stewardship. He wants us to make wise use of that stewardship, multiplying those things to His glory. And when we fail to do so, when we fail to remember what our purpose here on earth is, then we're, we're, we're failing to be wise stewards. They're God's resources, and we need to make sure that our planning is done in such a way that it pleases God. Now, let's look next at what James is against. He is not against those other things. In fact, I probably should have put the outline a little bit more positive. I should have said, James positively commands us to be involved in this kind of capitalistic venture, right, if we're businessmen. So I should have framed that more positively. But now let's take a look at what James is against. First of all, James is against planning that fails to take eternity into consideration. Now, we're always telling people we need to have a long-term vision. Well, that's the ultimate in long-term vision is keeping eternity in mind. Now, let's start at verse 14. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now here James points out that we're all going to die and it's probably not into you know, the too distant future. In fact, when you compare it to eternity, for all of us, it's in the not too distant future. And he says that is absolute foolishness for us to live our entire lives just serving the present to be present-oriented. He says that is foolish. If we are not doing our planning in such a way that our work will make an impact upon eternity, he says that uh, we're not doing it as we ought. And it's true in terms of your plans for birth control or any other subject. See, how you evaluate your plans, you need to be thinking not just what am I going to be comfortable with in the present, but how is this going to impact the long term in time, and how is it going to impact things in eternity? And a lot of people, when they're looking at the education of their children and birth control and, and uh, so many different subjects, they're evaluating based on what's inconvenient right now. 
what feels good right now rather than thinking for the long term. And so what he wants us to do is to develop a long-term uh, perspective. Someone once described eternity this way. He said, once every 100 years a bird comes and sharpens his beak on a large rock the size of our planet, and uh, over a long period of time, billions of years, you know, that rock starts to get worn away. Well, when that rock is completely worn away, one second of eternity has passed. And what he was trying to communicate with that illustration is that compared to eternity, our entire life, no matter how long we live here on earth, our entire life is not even one trillionth of a second in comparison with eternity. And yet, here we are, focusing all of our time, all of our energies, all of our resources to try to succeed in this life, to try to win the praises of men, women, and children in this life, uh, to try to get ahead in this life. That's not the purpose of God giving us resources. Yes, we will get ahead in time, but we need to be thinking, how will what I am doing right now impact me for eternity, how is what I am laying up here on earth laying up treasures in heaven? How can I best serve the Lord with absolutely everything that I do? If you've fallen into the trap of being present-oriented, you rarely look at life from an eternal perspective. James gives us three things that we need to meditate upon, and it will give you an eternal perspective. Here is the first thing. Remind yourself continually that life is unpredictable. Verse 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Now, for those of you who've been following uh, Jonathan's and Travis's discussion on the forum, um, here is another verse that fits into this whole area of induction, you know, where there is a degree of uncertainty, quite a large degree of uncertainty when based on induction, of what's happened in the past, you make predictions of what's going to happen in the future. James says you simply do not know, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Now, there's some things we can know about uh, the future. We know that the sun's going to keep coming up until uh, the end of history because the Bible's told us that, right? That's a deduction. That's not an induction. And we know that uh, there's going to go on seasons and that we're not going to have a flood to destroy all mankind and that there's going to be nations who will be converted and things like that. But most things we simply do not know about tomorrow. Uh, we have no idea. And uh, let's just apply that concept. You really can't count on a paycheck coming in next week to pay off the loan that you have taken, and yet how many of us presume upon the future by constantly getting needlessly into debt? We're presuming upon the future. Would you be in deep trouble if you were disabled next week and could not work for the rest of your life? Have you taken out disability insurance? Or have you in some way acknowledged the fact you're not invincible? You are not the sovereign over time. Uh, you don't know that you're going to be healthy next week, and yet how many Christians do not have health insurance? Now, is it, is, is it absolutely imperative that people have health insurance? Now, there's other ways to manage uh, our health, but we need to realize that we cannot presume upon the future. I talked with a friend before Y2K who said uh, that he had really no intention of um, uh, trying to pay down the loan on his house, uh, because he said in a time of economic collapse, uh, there would be no um, uh, reason for the banks to be, you know, 
claiming all the houses, you know, everybody's in the same debt boat, and he can't, couldn't imagine that these banks would be taking houses from the people. And so he said, that's a good reason to get into more debt, which he did. He hawked his house even more into debt. But let me tell you something. It did not take an economic collapse, which obviously didn't happen, for him to lose his house. I think it was maybe a month or two later, he lost his job, and he couldn't get a job for a long, long time. They lost their house and weren't able to buy a house for uh, many years. Uh, I think it was like three years after that. And so again, we've got to keep in our minds, we cannot presume upon the future. God in his word has told us to take precautions because of this unpredictability, and he's also called us to make sure that uh, the, the present counts for eternity. To plan as if you have a, a, a long life ahead of you and you're going to plan for your great-grandchildren, but to live as though tomorrow were your last day, uh, to be taking precautions. Okay, a second thing that James reminds us of and that can help us to have this uh, eternal perspective is that life is feeble. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Okay, you've got this vapor that's coming out of the tea kettle and you can see it for a little bit. Now you see it, now you don't. It just disappears. It says, our life is feeble, just like that. Uh, we never know uh, when it is we're going to die. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live. If the Lord wills, we shall live. We can't presume that we're going to be alive tomorrow. We could be struck down by a car. There could be any number of reasons why we might die. And you might think, you know, we don't, do we really need to be this morose, you know, about life? Well, the Bible tells us we ought to think about death. It's good for us to have our children think about death. Death was constantly before people. In fact, Solomon says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. Well, why is that the case? Well, it's because when you're at the funeral parlor, you're much more prone to think about eternity, aren't you? And the fact that this is such a short span of time that we're living down here below. We tend to insulate ourselves from death here in, in America. Uh, we make it so beautiful and nice, and, and we rarely go to funerals. It's just if it's a close friend or a relative. Out in Ethiopia, where we grew up, everybody went to everybody's uh, funeral. Uh, and you could tell that life was feeble because you constantly saw death around. There was this constant reminder at the top of their minds that they could get sick any time and, 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 and die high infant mortality. Uh, they, they were constantly reminded that a storm could come along and ruin their crops and uh, be wiped out. And so our lives are frail whether we insulate ourselves from that fact or not. And the more we think about that, the more we're going to try to make what we do accomplish here in time to count for eternity. And then the third reminder James gives us that logically flows from that, and that's the word little. He says it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so if you're so prone to being present-oriented that if you desire something, you do it, whether it's desiring to sleep in or whether it's desiring to buy something at the store that you really can't afford, if, if these things are gripping your life, you need to meditate on the future orientation that Christ talks about in Matthew chapter 6. So James is, first of all, against planning that fails to take eternity into consideration. Secondly, James is opposed to planning that fails to acknowledge God's sovereignty. And if you look at verse 15, you'll see 
that his sovereignty overrules absolutely everything in our planning. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now, I want you to notice that planning is not put in opposition to God's sovereignty. If the Lord wills, there is the sovereignty of God, we shall do this or that. There is the planning. There is the human responsibility. And the Apostle Paul, I think, is a fantastic example of a person who brings those two together in his life. He does not pit one against the other. They're constantly meshed together. Let me give you some examples. Paul said in Romans 1.13, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. He was saying his plans often failed. Is that encouraging? <laughs> don't, don't be discouraged if you've made these aggressive plans for the future and you only get through 30 or 40 or 50 percent of them. You know, some of the best leaders in Christian organizations around the states are thrilled. Of course, that's because they have such aggressive plans and far-reaching plans, but they're thrilled when they get 40 or 50 percent of their plans accomplished. Here's Paul. Here's a driven man. And he says, I've often planned to come and I've not been able to do it. I've been a failure on those plans. But he still keeps that plan and he is not frustrated by the fact that God has blue penciled those plans in. Um, he, he just postpones them till the time that they can be achievable. Two verses earlier, he said, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Now he was sensitive to the fact that God is constantly blue-penciling our plans. In other words, writing in changes that need to be made in our plans. Did you know that Jesus Christ himself had his plans blue-penciled in? You can read in the Gospels where he and his disciples are just bone-tired and they're going off to take a vacation. It says he went aside, he took his disciples aside so that they could rest a while because they were weary. And so they're off in the wilderness and the crowd finds them. And the disciples are really peeved. And Jesus takes it in stride. He recognizes, yes, we're going to still have to have a vacation, but God has providentially put a fantastic opportunity into our laps that we need to lay hold of, that we need to seize. And I'm convinced that many entrepreneurs lose opportunity after opportunity to make a profit because they are so rigidly focused on their plans that they're blind to the opportunities that God is throwing into their pathway. Completely blind to them. Now, don't get legalistic with planning. Planning's important. It's something I'm constantly harping on that people need to plan. But don't get legalistic with that. Be flexible. God's sovereignty makes us flexible, makes us quickly able to adapt to change. In fact, it causes us to expect that there's going to be change. Whereas if I am the sovereign, or at least I pretend to be the sovereign, I'm going to tend to be rigid, won't I? Because I have to create this illusion that my plans are good, that my plans do not fail. And so I'm going to be reticent to give up on my plans or other, everybody's going to realize I'm not the sovereign. I'm not the one who's in control of life. We recognize none of us is in control of life. God's the one who is sovereign. He is the one, but it does not make us passive either, does it? So we, we do plan. We're willing to have God adjust it. In fact, we seize those opportunities when we see that, wow, I never saw that opportunity for a prophet, the businessman says. He grabs it, runs with it, whereas this other person, he's piddling along with his plans legalistically, and he's totally blind to the things that God has sovereignly uh, distributed to him. And so when we develop such an if-the-Lord-wills attitude, we're not going to get bent out of shape 
with plans, I mean with changes, and we're not going to become passive. We're going to develop the expectation that the God who loves us, the God who knows all things, who is working all things together for our good, when he changes things, it's for our good, for time as well as for eternity. And uh, I want God to blue pencil. I'm delighted that God is sovereign, that he changes our plans from time to time. Let me just read you another passage that I found very interesting where very few of the plans that Paul had were inspired plans. Now, he, by inspiration, tells us about his plans. There were some plans that God had revealed to him, and there were other plans he just tells us, here's what I tried to do and I wasn't able to do. But let me, let me read you an example of uh, the iffiness in his plans. 1 Corinthians 16, 5 through 9. Paul says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, but it may be, okay, so there's iffiness already, it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may spend, send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so there's a certain iffiness about his planning for the future. He does make plans. They're an imperative. There's something we ought to be engaged in. But he recognizes God could change these. In fact, if you read on in terms of the history of Paul's working, you find he wasn't able to stay as long as he had anticipated, uh, even with, uh, with them when he stayed with them. Um, there is more to guidance than open doors. Uh, I'm fond of saying that you should not walk through every open door because some open doors lead to elevator shafts with a rude awakening at the bottom. And sometimes people just excuse their sinfulness and their irresponsibility by saying it was the Lord's guidance. It was an open door. Let me tell you something, that Jonah... Uh, had a perfect open door that God had providentially placed right there, you know, when he wanted to avoid his responsibility. Ah, a ship sailing in just the right direction. It's providential guidance, you know, perfect open door. No, we ought not to go through every open door that comes along. But in any case, uh, we need to be sensitive to God's sovereign disposition of our time. And to fail to do so is to miss many wonderful opportunities. A third thing that James opposes is self-sufficient planning or boastful planning. Verse 16, But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. <laughs> James wants us to have humility in our planning. Now, there's different ways in which we can boast. They were boasting in their business plans. Uh, we can boast in other ways, you know. We can determine how many children we're going to have, and then God brings along a surprise. It could be something just as, as simple as that. But, you know, one of the ways that we could be boasting is by being prayerless in our planning. You might say, well, how is that boasting? Prayerlessness is the claim, I don't need God's help, thank you. I can do this on my own. You're not asking for God's wisdom. You're not asking for God's input. And so one of the things I would like to ask you is when you made plans for 2004, did you prayerfully enter into those plans and say, Lord, we want to be sensitive not only to future adjustments to these plans, but help us to have wisdom for the right way in which to plan right now. Prayerlessness is pride. Prayerlessness is a refusal to recognize God is sovereign over our time. When you make vacation plans, do you pray about it? Uh, J.C. Ryle complained about the prayerlessness of his people, and so this must be something that's true in every age. But he said, Bibles read without prayer 
Sermons heard without prayer. Marriages contracted without prayer. Journeys undertaken without prayer. Residences chosen without prayer. Friendships formed without prayer. The daily act of private prayer itself hurried over or gone through without heart. These are the kinds of downward steps by which many a Christian descends to a condition of spiritual palsy or reaches the point where God allows him to have a tremendous fall. You may be very sure men fall in private long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. When you think about it, prayerlessness leads to apathy. It creates apathy and a failure to plan does as well. John MacArthur says this, The primary motivator of prayer is a sense of dependency on God. It is difficult to force yourself to pray when you think that you have a human solution to every problem and a natural resource for every need. And the problem is compounded in our affluent society. And I think that's what James is talking about, not against riches, but against boastful riches, self-sufficient riches. Uh, That's what he is against. It's a failure to submit to God's sovereignty over time. Finally, point D, James is opposed to planning that fails to study God's word. God's word shows us God's moral sovereignty, his sovereignty over ethics. Verse 17 says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. How do we know what's good? Through the scriptures, right? Scriptures define that. And over and over again in the book of James, he tells us we need to go to the scriptures and we need to be founded in the scriptures if we're going to be mature in every area of life. Well, the same is true of planning. The Bible has an enormous amount to say about our planning. And if we're not studying what the scripture has to say about that, and I could recommend different books that deal with uh, time, um, time management, planning, and things along those natures, but Uh, Peter tells us God's word has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Scriptures give us a slant, give us a perspective, give us guidelines, specific kinds of of guidelines and priorities for decision-making that's realistic and godly. Paul tells Timothy that the word of God is sufficient to thoroughly equip us for every good work. So anyway, those are the ways in which we can acknowledge God's sovereignty uh, over our schedules. And so let me end by reviewing James's points here. First of all, make sure that you plan carefully. That's verses 13 and 15. You're never going to mature in planning if you don't start planning, right? So we've got to at least start somewhere, and you're going to grow over time. Um, secondly, do all of your planning with eternity in mind, uh, realizing we've got a short time here below, and we want to make it count for time as well as for eternity. And we saw three ways in which we can keep that eternity in mind, looking at the unpredictability of the future, feebleness, shortness of life, only what's done for Christ will last. Thirdly, have expectations that God and His providence will continually be at work in your life. And don't be frustrated when God changes your plans. In fact, you can view it like a Christmas present, even though it might be painful. Just realize, whoa, you know, this is painful packaging, but I know there's a good gift in here because God is working all things together for my good. Just be aware, God is sovereign, and we just can be expecting those changes to our plans or new opportunities that he throws into our, our way. And just begin to thank him that he's in control. Fourth, 
continually acknowledge yourself to be in need of God's grace by bathing everything that you do in prayer. We're not sufficient to ourselves, and prayer, I think, is critical to planning. So avoid the self-sufficiency syndrome of verse 16, fifth. We need to be students of the Word in order to be able to apply that Word to the current situations that we face. And so that's what it means to plan under God's authority. It's my prayer that each one of us would do so to His glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this reminder in your word. Help us to avoid uh, the extremes on either end, uh, self-dependent planning and working, but on the other hand, uh, laziness that fails to plan, that fails to uh, uh, seek to use the resources that you have given to us to your honor and to your glory. Father, we constantly find ourselves being imbalanced in this way. Uh, Father, it's so easy for us, uh, even me as a a minister, to uh, become so driven by the schedule that we lose perspective of who it is that we are serving. Help us to have this balance in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.